is an incredible thing, is it not? I mean, we uh, see the love of the Father displayed. I, I remember thinking my, my dad and mom are here uh, to, to watch Reagan's baptism today. And so I remember when I was a kid, uh, and whenever anything remotely uh, kind of spiritually related in church uh, happened to me, uh, I remember, like, my dad, like, coming and, and, and blubbering in front of me and, like, crying and, I would, uh, and, and just, like, losing it. And I remember looking at him and thinking, I'm never going to do that, ever. Uh, <laughs> that's ne- I'm just never going to happen to me. And the same thing with sports, too. You know, I, was, I played a lot of baseball and things. And, um, uh, and I remember my dad was, like, my biggest uh, cheerleader. And, uh, you, know, and I would, you know, if I'd hit or make a good play, I mean, he was the loudest person out there and, and, and just, you know, screaming, shouting, and, and clapping. And, re- and, and I'm on the ball field, and I'm looking, and I'm just like, I'm just never going to do that. Like, that's, that's, not, that's not me. And I remember even thinking that way. And then, of course, my son now is in baseball, and uh, I'm sitting in the stands. And, uh, you know, he's up there, you know, right at the hit, and he, you know, swings with his eyes closed. And, and, um, and, uh, and, and the ball, like, barely trinkles off of his bat about four feet in front of him, and he runs. And, and, and I'm, like, I'm, like, taking off my shirt and whirling it around and, like, Love is an incredible thing, is it not? It changes everything, right? And as we get older, we experience it a little bit more, and I experience the depth of, of incredible love, and the and love that God has for us is even uh, deeper than that. We saw that on display a little bit um, in the parable series. We, we're in a new series in the book of Hosea. So if you've got a Bible, you want to try to find the book of Hosea, that would be good. It'll be on uh, in, uh, in the Version app, probably a little easier to find that way. Uh, in the book of Hosea. It's in the Old Testament, first minor prophet. Uh, but we're going to be there for the next several weeks. Uh, but we just came off a series on the parables where Jesus tells stories, and they're fictional stories that have big truths to them. And in one of those, about two weeks ago, I preached through uh, the the, pro- the prodigal son parable, uh, and one of the probably the most famous parables that there was. And what the, the purpose of the prodigal son parable was to teach about the love of God and the, the, the vast, um, unbelievable love that God has uh, for his lost uh, children. And so Jesus is telling, if you don't know the story, Jesus uh, is telling a story about a father who had two sons. It's not just about one son, it had two sons. And one of those sons wishes that the father was dead and asks for all of his inheritance. And he takes all of his inheritance with him and he goes and squanders it uh, in a wild lifestyle. Uh, and he finds himself in a pig pen uh, feeding the pigs and wanting to eat what the pigs were eating. Uh, and now, and so he kind of, he comes to himself and he realizes what he's doing, and he decides to go back to the father and beg to be, to, to be one of his hired servants. And in that story, it's an amazing story of God's love, because what it does is it, the father willingly accepts him back. In fact, runs out to him when he sees the son on the horizon, and runs out to his son, embraces him, and welcomes him back. Not as a slave or a hired servant, but welcomes him back into the household as if, he was, as if nothing ever happened that he was completely redeemed and restored. Now, on the other hand, you hear about this second brother. It's the elder brother. And the elder brother's mad because that should have never happened. That, that, that my younger brother squandered everything, and he's lost. He should have stayed lost. And I've, been, I've stayed here the whole time, and I've never done anything wrong. And now you're going to spend my inheritance on him, bringing him back into the family. And Jesus' main point 
Because that particular story, although it is a great picture of the love of God, it's not exactly the gospel story. Because it's missing one key element. And Jesus is teaching, and Jesus says that the elder brother should have left home and gone after the younger brother. And that's ex- and so Jesus is pointing this out and saying that he is the true and better older brother who left home to go find and redeem the lost. It's an incredible love story. And so you have these parables, and they're fictional stories. And, and they're, they're not meant to think that they're, we're not meant to think that they're true. We're just meant to think that they have a, a, a good point to them. And Jesus uses a lot of contrast, and he uses some, uh, some tension to build. You, it's like you need to think through these parables, but they're not real. They're fictional stories. Now, in the Old Testament, there wasn't that many parables. In fact, there are very, very few of them. Instead, in the Old Testament, what we have are real-life crazy stories that really did happen. Let me give you a few, because this is pretty intense. So you have some prophets, and they're just weird. They're really strange. So you have the prophet Ezekiel. God calls him to lay on his side for 430 days to symbolize how many years the Israelites had walked away from God, 430 years. And so God called him to take a long side nap for 430 days. That's kind of weird. He asked the same prophet, Ezekiel, to cook his food, and get this, and this is why it's PG, okay, to cook his food over burning human excrement. Yeah, that's in your Bible too, right? And it's just strange because God is calling Ezekiel to do this, to symbolize, this is what I think, this is what I think about your good works. This is what I think about your faithfulness to me. It's burning human excrement. That's what I think about it. Then you have the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah had the privilege of prophesying naked for three years. He just walked around the town naked for three years, telling the people of God, if you don't get your act together, God is going to take everything from you like this. For three whole years, Isaiah does it. And that's not a parable. That is for real life. For real life that happens. And so we we think about that like, that we think about the contrast between Jesus' New Testament parables and the Old Testament real-life scenarios that the prophets had to work through. Now, Hosea, Hosea is a, is a minor prophet of God. Minor just means that it's a very short book, okay? And he was called by God to preach to the northern kingdom of Israel. I'll get, that, I'll get to there in just a second. And here's the deal with Hosea. His wild thing that happened to Hosea was that God called him to marry a prostitute. What? He called Hosea to marry a prostitute. Now, you might be looking at the other prophets and saying, okay, I can take a nap. Like, I can do that. Like, that's fine. Or, you know, I'm, you know natural charcoal might be the way to go to cook my food. Like, I'm okay with that too. Um, or, you know, or like, I, I actually enjoy being nude. I can walk around for three years and that's okay. But marrying a prostitute, like that's a whole nother level. I don't think that I could do that. That'd be really 
uh, really tough, and I don't think that hurt, that helps anybody. So let me give you a little bit of history, because we're going to be in this for the next month. I want to make sure you understand where Hosea kind of fits into the biblical picture, okay? So if you look way back at Genesis, you don't have to turn there. Way back at Genesis, God creates the world, creates everything in the world, and creates mankind and sets them in a garden, the Garden of Eden, where, where mankind sinned and fell away from God, separated themselves from God's love, right? And so, uh, and, and so God provided a way through, pro, through building a, uh, a people for himself called the Israelite nation. So he called a man named Abraham and said, Abraham, it's your descendants that I'm going to bless as my children, and I'm going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you, and I'm going to redeem the entire world through your family. So he says that to Abraham. That family grows and grows and grows. It actually grows in the nation of Egypt. And that's where you have Moses coming up and because they became slaves in the nation of Egypt. And Moses comes up and raises them up and raises against Pharaoh and, and gets them to come to get out of the promise. I'm sorry, get out of Egypt, out of slavery. And so that he leads them into uh, the promised land. OK, so then they, they take over the promised land. They set up their kingdom and they finally set it up in the, in the city of Jerusalem underneath the greatest king that they've ever known, King David. Okay? And David was awesome, and he built the, the nation of Israel to, to national and world, I'm sorry, not national, but worldly prominence. And so you have David and Solomon, and they are the greatest, most powerful nation in the world. Up until after David and Solomon pass away, and the things began to break apart, and their descendants didn't do so well. They were very corrupt, and eventually the nation of Israel breaks into two. They break into Judah, which is the southern kingdom, and Israel, which is the northern kingdom. So they had kind of this civil war, and they, br they break apart. So in your Old Testament, you're going to have some prophets that are speaking to the southern kingdom of Judah, and some that are speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, Israel, the northern kingdom, was much worse than the southern kingdom. They had, they had years and years, and I want to say hundreds of years, of corruption and sin and brokenness, where basically they turned completely away from God. Like they didn't do anything with God anymore, uh, and they worshiped Baal. And so they, they had all these different temples and things to Baal. And so God would raise up various things, trying to draw his people back to himself. And, so, and that's where you have the prophets. And the prophets would speak to the people and say, you need to come back to God. But the nation of Israel, the, uh, the northern nation of Israel, basically never did that. And for 200 years, now think about that. That's a long period of time for us to comprehend. Our, our country has only been around for like 250 years, okay? So for 200 years, they walked away from God. There was no worship of God, no worship of Yahweh. So like, so you have, then finally God raises up this person of Hosea to basically say, hey, you guys need to get your act together. But the problem was, at the time of Hosea, everything was peaceful and prosperous for the nation of Israel. There was actually nothing going wrong. Everything was going actually pretty well for them. Everybody was moving forward. There was peace. They weren't at war. And the prophet Hosea comes along and he says, you, buy, you guys better get ready because the Assyrians are about to come and kill all of you. And so that's what most of the book is about. So if you read the book of Hosea in your quiet time, you're going to read a lot of poetic language and prophecy accusing the people of Israel of a lot of sin and telling them to get their act together. That's what he's telling them. But in the process, God wants to illustrate for the people of God what he's currently feeling. He wants to show them what it means for, for 
like uh, to understand how God is seeing all of this and the unfaithfulness of the people. And so instead of telling a parable, God is going to tell a real life story by having Hosea, the prophet of God, a holy man of God, a righteous man of God, to marry a prostitute. So if you turn there in Hosea chapter 1, now what we understand though is that we're, we're not really sure, but it's it's... It, it's a little bit tough to, to decipher the language, but it's very possible that, Ho, that uh, Hosea's wife uh, was faithful at the very beginning and then turned unfaithful. But the important part to remember is, is that God told Hosea, hey, by the way, you're going to marry this woman and she is going to be unfaithful to you. Can you imagine that? Imagine getting engaged and saying, hey, by the way, just FYI, she's going to cheat on you. It's going to happen by the proclamation of God. That's tough. That's a tough wedding day, right? Tough to take the vows at that point, right? All right, so let's look at Hosea chapter 1, 2 through 3. It says this, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. I told you it was PG, okay? And have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom for forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore him a son. Okay, so the name of, of Hosea's um, wife, is, her name is Gomer, bummer of a name, right? Right? So you, <laughs> you got Gomer, okay? And, and what God says is, you're probably going to be faithful at the beginning, but you're not going to be faithful forever, and, and you're going to cheat on your husband. That's a tough prophecy to get around, okay? Uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, it says this. And the Lord said to him, he's going to talk about their first child, which they had together, which is pretty plain. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us. So if you're reading these passages, you're like, what in the world does that mean? So here's the deal. Jezreel was this place of bloodbath. It's a place where armies would come and fight and people would get slaughtered. It was known as a place of blood. And so this would be the equivalent of naming your child Auschwitz or naming your child Gettysburg or naming your child Hiroshima. That's what the equivalent would be. Can you imagine naming your child? Hey, that's Auschwitz over there. That'd be tough. It'd be like, hey, yeah, there's my, there's my kid over there on the playground. His name is Bloodbath. A little tough. So what? Why in the world does God call Hosea? This is their child between Hosea and Gomer. He says, and, and the reason why is because naming someone communicated a lot to the community. You imagine the amount of conversations that you would have on a play date if you named your child bloodbath, right? Why did you do that? And Hosea would respond and say, well, here's the deal. If we don't turn and follow the Lord... Things are going to go bad for us. This whole kingdom is going to be a bloodbath if we don't get our act together. And he would use it as an opportunity to tell the people and remind the people and prophesy over the people to tell them what to do. And so that's their first kid together. It doesn't get any better, okay? All right, so, uh, so the um, verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. Now, I want you to notice the language there. She conceived and bore a daughter. It doesn't, have, doesn't say anything about Hosea. 
And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by the bow or, or by sword or by, or by war or by horses or horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, this is where it gets a little dicey for the children. The first son, it's obvious that this is a son of Hosea and Gomer together. The second two children, it doesn't say that specifically. So it's entirely, it's entirely possible that both of these, this, this younger daughter and younger son, may not be Hosea's children. And we know this because of the naming of it. So, you know, that's my daughter. Her name is Unloved, right? Can you imagine being on the playground with that one? Who's that? Oh, that's Unloved. She's very Unloved, right? Who's that right over there? Oh, that's not my son. That's not my son right there. Well, whose son is it? No, it's, it's, it's not my son. It's kind of confusing. But that's what he names his children, to display and put on, uh, to put on display what God is saying to the people. It gives them opportunity to speak by naming his children these things, and he's naming them to tell everybody, hey, I don't know if these are my children. They're probably not. They kind of don't look like me. And this is a picture of what Israel has done to God. They've walked away from him. They've been unfaithful to him. And what we know now after chapter 1 is that, and then one day, Gomer, his wife, the one who he was told was going to be unfaithful, one day she leaves. She just up and leaves. And Hosea wakes up one day, and she's gone. And he doesn't know where she is. And he's there with one child that he knows is his, named Bloodbath, and two two others that he's not really sure that it's really his children. So he's stuck there with three kids, and he doesn't know where his wife is. And she is just gone. And he thinks, and he starts to hear rumors throughout the community where she might be. And he begins to ask himself, I guess this is what was prophesied to me and told, well, I I knew that this was going to happen. What would you do if you were him? If you were him and you had a wife that you're pretty sure conceived two children outside of your marriage and you were there with them and now you're pretty sure that she's away from you now being very unfaithful and cheating on you in some kind of way, what would you do? It's a tough question to ask. It's a tough tough question to answer. How would you react? What would you think? What would you do? Would you go and try to divorce her? Try to slander her name around the community? What would you do? Would you just sulk away in bitterness? How would you handle it if you were Hosea? I would have a hard time with that. The funny thing is about that particular question is that I always, when I'm reading this, I put myself in the place of Hosea. I put myself in the place of God in this story. And I say, oh, you know, what would Hosea do? How would I process this? But here's the deal. I am not Hosea in this story. I am Gomer in this story. You see, my sin causes me to be unfaithful to God. And God knew that when he saved me. He knew that I would be unfaithful to him. And yet he still redeems me. He knew 
that I would walk away from him and sin against him over and over and over again. Yet he still chose to redeem me. I am Gomer. I'm not Jose. And you are Gomer as well. We all are. We are all unfaithful to God. Numerous times, over and over and over and over again. And yet, God still, in this amazing, incredible love, still loves us with this incredible love. And so this is where the story kind of takes a turn that's very interesting. In chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles, turn to chapter 3. It says this. This is Hosea speaking. He says, And the Lord said to me, Go again. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and underline that. Go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the cakes of raisins. God calls Hosea not only to like marry this person who's going to be unfaithful, he calls her, he calls him, even though she has now run away from him altogether. And he doesn't, he, not just to, not just to find her and protect her, but he calls her to go love her in her adultery. Don't just go find her and bring her back. You need to love her. Even when the people of God are not repentant, and even when they're going after things, the food of the gods is what that's talking about. Even when it's going after other things, go get her. Bring her back. Go and not only get her, but love her back. It reminds me of Romans 5, 8. says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So can you picture the scene? And this isn't in the scripture, so I'm just going to imagine. This is kind of what... God shows to me as I read this scripture, and just imagine with me for just a moment. So Hosea has to go and find his wife. You imagine, so Hosea, the prophet, the man of God, the righteous man of God, has to go and find Gomer. Where would she be? And so he finds himself in a part of town that prophets don't go. Pastors don't go to these particular streets. You might think of it as like the red light district or something like that. This is not where the holy man of God goes. And you imagine he walks up to a woman who's dressed very unsightly and with his eyes towards the ground, asks her and and looking around, making sure that nobody else is watching this prophet of God talk to this woman that he probably shouldn't be talking to. And he, he asks her just real quietly, have you seen Gomer? And he looks, she looks back at him and smiles and said, oh yeah, I've seen her. She's around here. I haven't seen her in a couple of days, but I've seen her. She's around here somewhere. He walks away. He finds another man there. He walks up to him. He says, hey, have you seen Gomer? And that man looks at him bright-eyed and says, oh man, Jose, I didn't know. I, uh, she was, she was here, and I didn't know that y'all were still together. And a lot of other guys didn't know that either. Uh, I hope we're, I hope you're cool. Like, I, but I, no, I, I mean, I, I know she was a couple streets down. You might want to check, but we're, we're cool, right? I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know that she was still with you. 
So Hosea goes and finally finds her. And he walks into a chaotic place. And it's a slave market. A sexual slavery market. Where he finally sees Hosea. And he walks in and she is on the auction block. Ready to be sold as a slave. As a sex slave. As a prostitute. Can you imagine that? What would you do? That's my wife. On that block, that's my wife. That's mine. I married her. That's my wife. And everybody laughs and says, wives don't do what your wife did. We've seen what she does. She's not a wife. No, he's like, no, no, she's mine. I married her. She's mine. And the auctioneer looks at him and says, not anymore. She has a price to be paid. And if you want her back, you're going to have to pay a steep price for her. And so, Hosea, in verse 2 of chapter 3, says this, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley, meaning this great price that he had to pay her. He buys back his very own bride out of slavery. Now here's the deal, guys. The Bible tells us that everything belongs to the Lord. That all the earth is the Lord's and all things here too. That's what the Bible says. That everything you know, everything you see, everything you feel, everything everything that is in this world, God has made it and has and owns it. Everything. God, there is not one thing that you see or know or hear or feel. There's not one thing that Jesus Christ doesn't stand over and say, that is mine. He owns all of it. And he, like Hosea, stands in the slave market and says, that's mine. That's mine. I created her. I created him. I know her. She is mine. Yet, things that are unlost and things that are unfaithful. Someone has to purchase that. Someone has to redeem that back out of slavery. And it is a great price. Even though we walk away from God altogether to begin with, we still have to be redeemed. You see, these names really mean something. Gomer, although kind of a bummer of a name, Gomer means incomplete. Gomer means incomplete. And Hosea is an interesting one. Because Hosea actually comes from, you know, names and language kind of morph over time. Um, And so the name Joshua, you might have named your child that or known several Joshuas. The name Joshua of the Old Testament, it means one who saves. And Joshua was a mighty man of God. This is hundreds of years after Joshua, and his name had kind of morphed and evolved, and his name is Hosea. Joshua moves into Hosea. Now, Hosea, 750 years later, would also evolve as a name, still meaning the one who saves. Hosea transitions into Yeshua, which is Jesus. Jesus' name means the one who saves. And he is coming after those who are incomplete. 
And so you have Hosea, the saving one, who says to Gomer, the incomplete one, verse 3, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore and belong to another man. And get this, so will I also be to you. I will be faithful to you always. And you will no longer be an adulterer. You will no longer be a whore or a harlot. You will no longer belong to anyone. But I will be with you. This strange promise that somebody else made a little later. So in her prostitution, Hosea brings her home, regardless of how many times she cheated on him, regardless of how many times she was unfaithful, Hosea redeems her back. No matter how many times she, uh, like that, that she kind of came back and then she went out again and came back and went out again, that, that Hosea loves her. And then in this amazing prophetic moment at the end of chapter 3, he says this. This is where Hosea kind of looks off into the future, and he says this about the people of God. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without a king or prince, without a sacrifice or pillar, without an ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. There will be a time where the people of God will fear God, but they will do it without a temple, without a priest, without a king, without a sacrificial system, but they will know the fear of the Lord and they will know his goodness. I'm sorry, Hosea looks into the future and sees a people that don't need a temple anymore, that don't need a sacrificial system anymore, that don't need a priest anymore. And he says, but they will fear the Lord. They will respect the Lord. They will know the goodness of the Lord. And they will seek, and get this, they will seek David as king. Now, what's interesting about that is that David, by this time, when Hosea is, is preaching this message, David had been dead for a long time. He says that we will worship David the king. You see, as Hosea sees it, he sees this messianic king figure in the future. And we know him as the son of David, the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, who goes on the auction block of the cross and ransoms us, although we are are unfaithful to him. I am going. You are Gomer, and we are in desperate need of our Hosea. And so the message of this whole thing, the message of Hosea as we walk through it over the next couple weeks is knowing this, is that God has an incredible amount of love for you, more than you could ever imagine. And so whether you, I don't know how you walked in this room today, I don't know how unfaithful you have been to God, because I know that all of us have, but maybe you're just like, I am unforgivable. You don't understand. I can't walk in here because I have been so unfaithful. You don't know the things that I've done. Gomer's a prostitute. And God says that he sent the man of God to save her and redeem her. I guarantee you that you have not done anything like that. And even if you did, God is still going to love you. And so my question to you is, is what is your excuse for not coming to God? Is it just that you don't think that he could save you? Because he can. He can save you out of whatever slavery that that you're going through right now. And so if you would like to respond, I want to call you.
to a relationship with Christ, a relationship with our Hosea, Jesus. To know the saving one, to get to the place where you are complete and know the completeness of God. As we walk through this uh, over the next couple of weeks, I, I hope that you'll come back and realize the depth of God's love for you. We're going to sing one more song it talks about. It's a familiar song to a lot of us. We're going to sing one more song. It's talking about that reckless love of God. And if you want to make a decision for Jesus, I'm going to stand right back there in the back of that room. If you don't come, I'm going to sing my lungs out. So come on and see me. Um, and I would love to pray with you about redemption through Jesus Christ and knowing his salvation and knowing the one who comes to save. Okay, let's pray together. Yeshua, Jesus, thank you for being the one who claims us off of the slavery block. Thank you for shouting and telling us that we are yours, that you have created us and know us and own us. Yeah, we are lost and unfaithful to you, and now you have called us back. You're screaming and shouting, that's mine. And you're willing to buy us. You're willing to ransom us back, to call us to your own, and then you give us that promise that I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to love you even in your dirtiness, and even in your unfaithfulness, I'm going to love you. So God, I pray for the one in this room who needs to know that type of love that desperately has been very unfaithful that knows very well that they need to be redeemed God I I just ask um, I ask that you give them the courage to walk, to respond to say to somebody I need Jesus Father thank you for that redemption